Hey, before we jump in, my sister and her family live down in Texas, and they generally watch online. So I need to take a second here and uh, wish her a happy 39th birthday. So she turns 39 today. So congratulations to Mandy at you know that age. Uh, not sure how many Sunday birthdays she'll see after this one. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I needed to take a second get that out of the way uh, for her. So again, happy birthday, Mandy. That being said, we're in part two of a series of messages called Christmas Cheer. And uh, don't know how much you were aware of this. I for sure was not aware of this even a couple years ago. Uh, For sure not as a kid. But in my experience, it seems as as though uh, as, as I go through life, there's a lot of people that get super angry about, of all things, Christmas. Like like something that happens in, the, for example, you guys remember the Starbucks cup controversy of 2015? You guys know what I'm talking about? Where they uh, decided not to just print plain red cups. Uh, that They decided to print just plain red cups instead of printing the decorated red cups that they traditionally printed. And they had the audacity, Starbucks, a company who has never for a second even claimed to have anything to do with Christianity. They had the audacity to uh, not write Merry Christmas on their cups. They'd only put Merry Christmas on their gift cards. And a YouTuber said that this was deliberate. They're persecuting Christians. That was the exact wordage he used in this video that went viral. Got like 50 million uh, views because, uh, of course, this is corporate America trying to creep the, the, the keep the Christian down. They're trying to hijack the holiday. And now I'm in trouble because I just referred to Christmas as a holiday. And everybody knows that good Christians, you have to say Merry Christmas. You can't say Happy Holidays. We have to keep the Christ in Christmas, right? I didn't know he was about to leave, you know? I didn't like, this is the worst Christmas party Jesus has ever been to. And somebody doesn't turn some water into eggnog, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm out of here. We got to keep the Christ in Christmas. But uh, to be fair... I do personally prefer when people say Merry Christmas. I generally like to say Merry Christmas myself instead of Happy Holidays. But if they say Happy Holidays, I don't care. You know why? Because at least they're being nice, you know, which is more than I can say for some other people this time of year. Plus, I know the word uh, holiday, it actually comes from two old English words. You know what those words meant? Holy Day. It's where we get holiday from holy day. So even though they might be intentionally trying to avoid Christ at Christmas when they're saying happy holidays, they're still giving him the glory. My God's big enough to handle Merry Christmas or happy holy days. Come on, somebody. Uh, But before I really get on a rant, that's not really even what I want to talk about. I was just... Uh, But uh, where I'm going with this, follow me on this. Socrates taught for 40 years. Plato for 50, Aristotle another 40, Uh, Jesus just over three years, and yet his teachings have had more of an impact than Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates combined. Jesus never wrote a poem, never scribed a chapter of any sort of novel, and yet Dante, Milton, and Lewis have written epic works based on Jesus' teaching, works that would last hundreds of years. Furthermore, Jesus has composed no music, 
We have no record of him ever playing an instrument, and yet Beethoven and Bach and uh, Handel, they would all record some of the most iconic symphonies in the history of the world. Hope you know Jesus never touched a paintbrush, uh, never chiseled any sort of artwork, and uh, thousands of pieces of art all reflect his beauty. Which leads me to believe that Jesus' reason for coming had nothing to do with art or influence or sculptures or trees or seasons greetings. The reason for the season was so that Jesus could save humanity's souls. And hear me now, you each have a part to play in that. And that part has nothing to do with correcting people's words choice or how they greet you at Christmas or what color of coffee mug they choose to use. It has to do with showing them the love of God. For God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus into this world to bridge the gap between death and everlasting life. That is the point of Christmas. So what we're doing over these weeks together, this Advent season as we lead up to Christmas, is we're trying to find some characters within their Christmas story and what their response to Christmas was. And in turn, we're trying to take a practical look at what our response to Christmas should be based on how some other people have chosen to act in response to it. And really, the genesis for this entire series came out of two passages that I thought really went well with each other because when Jesus is first born and, and we read the story and Luke, an angel shows up to some shepherds and he says to them, have no fear, I bring you good news of great joy. That's for all people. And then a number of years later, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he says, I've told you these things so that you'll be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy is going to overflow. And I'm not a Bible scholar, but it appears to me the distinguishing mark on the surface of a Christian's life should be joy, should be cheer. And for many people, it is, but for other people, not so much. And so the question that we're really trying to answer in this series is why? Why at Christmas specifically do people feel so compelled to get angry and entitled and just demand things and say specific things and tell everybody else their opinions? And I think we get a part of the answer uh, from Matthew chapter 2. So that's the passage we're going to look at today. If you brought a Bible, I'd encourage you to go ahead and grab it. Join me in Matthew chapter 2. The character that we're doing our case study on today is a guy named Herod, King Herod. It's a message I'm calling the king of my castle. Let's check it out. Uh, You need the big number two, little number one. It reads, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. 
Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. When you find him, come back to me and tell me so I too can go and worship him. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they they were filled with joy. There's our word, exclamation point. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it's time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us this eyewitness account of how your son came to be on this planet. God, we're asking you now to do what only you can do and open up our hearts and open up our minds. Give us a clear understanding of what you would have for us today. Help us leave this place changed one step closer to you. God, perhaps some lines got crossed. We misunderstood one another. I prayed for snow on Christmas Day, not today. This is not the snow we prayed for. We want wet, heavy snow that you can build snowmen with, that you can crush your children with snowballs with. Please allow this to be true. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As best as scientists can tell, we human beings are the only creatures that are self-aware enough to worry. Uh, Animals don't worry. Human beings are the only ones that do. Here's the exact uh, quote that I read from a psychology journal. It says, whereas the other animals respond to life mostly on a moment-by-moment basis, our human beings' ability to imagine the future allows us to behave in ways today that will have desired consequences or outcomes later on. In other words, how you imagine your future, like what you worry about, it could have a desired outcome or a consequence. So when people worry about the right thing, often that can result in a desired outcome. But when you worry about the wrong thing, that can often result into a consequence because you weren't focused on what you actually should have been focused on. For instance, flying. Many people are worried about flying. I'm one of them. I hate to fly. It's unnatural. You're cramped up in this aluminum can with a bunch of other people breathing recycled air. Who knows what that person is hacking up next to you, you know what I mean? And then you got to breathe that in, and it's just all very worrisome. But the reality is I'm actually statistically worried about the wrong thing because flying is way safer than driving. And yet, I would still rather drive than fly. Even still, with driving, I'm worried about the wrong thing because numerically uh, speaking, driving is just as dangerous as canoeing. That's for real. I'm not making that up. The numbers are exactly the same. Almost 1 in 10,000 people will die in a car accident and 1 in 10,000 people will die canoeing. 
my, my friends make fun of me because I'm just the worst at canoeing. I can't paddle. I get all spun around and like I'm stressed out and anxious and Laura's up there yelling at me like, what are you doing? I'm trying to control this boat. And if a spider gets in there, you know, I'm bailing out of that mug or just jamming it with the thing and then we poke a hole in the boat. It's just the worst. Uh, and so the reality is, canoeing is dangerous. You know, stop making fun of me because I can't do it. And But I'm worried about the wrong thing. Uh, according to the numbers, what you should be worried about is dancing. Uh, just a number of years ago, we had this flash mob craze. You guys remember this? Where people just show up in random places and then everybody would break into the spirit of dancing. And we got the viral videos of the, the security guys, you know, breaking it out during the halftime of the game. And uh, the slow your roll, J-Lo, because you should know one in a hundred thousand people die dancing. Men, you're welcome. The next time your wife asks you to go dancing... You say, I ain't rolling the dice on that, you know, I'm staying fine at home. Uh, But people die dancing. According to the numbers, what you really should be worried about, 450 people will die this year from falling out of bed. Better put some foam down or something. Uh, An additional 150 people will die from being struck by a falling coconut. Don't go to Hawaii, anybody. People always wonder why there's not as many left-handed people as there are right-handed people, and it's because each year 2,500 left-handed people will die from using right-handed tools incorrectly. And so, uh, good luck with that left lefties. But uh, you really want to live on the edge this year? Open a champagne bottle. 24 people this year alone will die from opening a corked bottle. Here's my point. There's always something you could be worried about, but it's often the wrong thing. You think the last guy who went to bed or opened up a champagne bottle was worried, this is going to be my last moment on the planet, and it could pop, and then that's it. Uh, now, I'm not saying he, he should have been worried about something else, but science would, would prove the fact, it's unmistakably clear, that worry robs you of joy. Worry creates anxiety and stress, and it forces you to make decisions you otherwise wouldn't make. We see this in our text. The same joy that the wise men found, Herod forfeited. Look at verse 10. Wise men, filled with joy. Back to verse 3. King Herod, deeply disturbed. Why the dichotomy? Worry. Herod was worried about the wrong thing. Here's how I want you to jot it down if you're taking notes. By offering joy to all, God inherently creates jealousy in some. It's unavoidable. Worry, jealousy, it acts the same way. And by God creating joy, sending joy to the world, offering it to everyone, it inherently creates jealousy in some and worry in others. So as we continue the conversation this morning, really the question that I'm trying to get you to answer in your own heart and diagnose in your own life is what am I worried about? Like what do you as an individual allow to generate worry in your life? Is it the right thing? Because you can worry about good things. Is it help or is it causing jealousy? 
And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, Pastor, thanks to you, I'm now worried about everything. Canoeing and coconut and falling out of bed. Like, I, look, I'm with you. It was a struggle for me to get out of the house this morning. I might not ever leave my house again because of everything that's happening. But uh, if you can really strip away all the layers of it all, and I think if you could really get to the heart of the issue of what is causing worry in your life more than spiders and more than snakes and more than flying and more than the safety of your own children, the single greatest worry that people have is you're scared to lose your power. You're worried about losing control. You're worried that you won't have autonomy in your life anymore. We worry about that because we all have the desire to be kings of our castle. We're authors of our own stories, masters of our own domains. Could have taken you all the way back to Genesis for this when sin entered into humanity. And that tempter, Satan, came to the woman Eve and said, you'll be like God if you'll eat this fruit. And instead of worrying about the consequences... Instead of thinking about all the joy that she had already been given, the man and the woman become jealous. They want to be like God. Who is God to tell us what to do? And since that moment where they bit into that fruit, ever since then we've all had that same lust for control. We've all battled that same idea that I don't need anybody telling me what to do. Just the other night as I was putting my kids to bed, one of them who will remain nameless asked me, why do I have to do what you say? And I said, you have to do what I say because it only takes me and your mom nine months and we'll make a new one of you. You know what I'm talking about? Like... It's, and I enjoy that process of it. You know, it's all this that we're having right now that I don't appreciate. Uh, but it, the pride... And the jealousy, that starts early, doesn't it? I didn't have to teach my kids any of that. It's in their wicked little hearts. And this is not just a biblical concept either, by the way. Throughout history, the hunger for power has motivated many men and many women to uh, create horrific atrocities across the globe. It's argued that Genghis Khan killed up to 11% of the world's population. Let that sink in. 40 million people by some estimates that he murdered. His son-in-law, Timur, just as wicked. He once built a tower out of 20,000 skulls to intimidate the tribes that were around them to not mess with Timur. Apparently, it didn't have the same impact that he thought it would. It didn't generate fear among the people. So the next group of people that he beat in battle, he skinned some of them alive. The others, he constructed a tower out of their bodies. Oh, by the way, while they're still breathing. Like, who even thinks of that? Like, who even thinks to themselves, you know what? I'm going to skin this dude alive. And then I'm going to build a tower out of everybody else, and I'm going to cement them together while they're still breathing. You know, first breakfast, finish the breakfast burrito, and then that's what we're going to do today. Like, what in the world? Who thinks of that? I could have talked to you about Ivan the Terrible, Attila the Hun, Bloody Mary, if you think this is just a male problem. More recently, could have talked to you about Stalin or Pol Pot or Hitler. History is rot with horrific, horrible people. And it's kind of ironic 
because we get a pretty good case study in this text from our boy Herod. King Herod is notoriously ruthless. He once drowned a Jewish high priest who was more popular than him. He had two of his adult sons strangled because he thought they were trying to overthrow him. History tells us he murdered his favorite wife. He had ten, so he got a new favorite, you know, <laughs> lucky her, and uh, m- murdered, murdered her and her family because he too thought... He, he had to change his will seven times because he kept murdering the heir. So Merry Christmas, everybody. This is the most festive message I could come up with. Murder, death, and destruction. Uh, but this should kind of cause verse 3 to be put in a little bit better context for you because it says King Herod was deeply disturbed, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Well, of course they were. They knew Herod was insane. And so when these kings from the east show up, these wise men start looking for the newborn king of the Jews. Everybody's like, ooh, we don't actually use that name around here because guess what King Herod's favorite little nomenclature for himself was? King of the Jews. That's what he liked to refer to himself as. It's kind of ironic because he wasn't even Jewish. If you know your Bible history, we can trace Herod's line back to Esau of the same Esau of Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That's where Herod comes from. Uh, and so he's not a Jew. And in order to fix that little paradox that is his life, he married a Jew and began practicing Judaism. In fact, he helped rebuild the Jewish temple. And uh, in his own mind, he was trying to create some sort of credibility as a Jew. But it just goes to show you that you can know a lot about God and never actually know God. And that's what people should be worried about. But when the God of the universe does show up, Herod was so worried about keeping his throne, he never surrendered his heart. And that's a big deal because uh, Herod, what's true for him, is also true for you. And there's only one place on the throne of your heart for a king. And the question is, is that king going to be you? you going to be king of your castle? Or are you going to surrender to the king of the universe? See, Jesus didn't come to this planet to be a great moral teacher. He didn't come to be some sort of inspiring character for you to model your life after. He came as a king, and one day he will return as a king. And that's what you should be worried about. But watch what Herod's response was. Verse 16. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. Remember, they left by a different route instead of coming back to him. So Herod sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Now, skeptics will like to point to the fact that there's no clear historical archaeological evidence of this mass killing in Bethlehem. Maybe you've heard that. You can't trace this in history. It probably never happened, but a couple points. First of all, Herod controlled a large portion of what was written about him. When you're king, you can do that. You've seen the Bud Light commercials during games. As your leader 
scribe, write this down. Make that handsome leader, you know. Uh, when you're king, you tell people what to write and they have to write it. A few thousand years ago, there isn't a freedom of the press. And so when King Herod is looking over this editorial brief and is reminded of the fact that, oh yeah, we killed a whole bunch of little babies, Jewish babies, that doesn't look good for king of the Jews. So he naturally redacts all of that from history. And nonetheless, we actually do get a report of this event taking place from the last known Roman historian, a guy named Macrobius. He, he wrote, uh, writes this, When it was heard that as part of the slaughter of boys up to two years old, Herod, king of the Jews, ordered his own son to be killed, not the first one, by the way, he, the Emperor Augustus remarked, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. It's uh, Caesar Augustus's version of a joke because uh, as a Jew, King Herod wouldn't actually kill any pigs because they're considered unclean animals. And so it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. Ha, 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 Caesar jokes. But you can see there is some sort of historical evidence that we get. Uh, again, skeptics say, well, that was written 150 years after the case. And who cares? There's a lot of things written 100 years afterwards. But uh, the reason, the other reason there's not much written on this event taking place is because Bethlehem's a small backwater town in the middle of nowhere. There was likely only a handful of boys aged two years two years and under, which don't get me wrong, that's one too many little boys killed. But in light of who Herod had already killed, this is just a drop in the bucket. This is just a Tuesday for Herod. Kill some more people, why don't you? And uh, of course we're not going to have any evidence of this happening. It wasn't mainline news. Nonetheless, if you believe in karma, you'll be happy to know that eventually Herod would die a horribly painful death. From affliction, he had bloody ulcers. Uh, the, the historian Josephus writes, caused Herod's breath to be putrid. His entrails would bleed. It, it was so painful that Herod himself tried to take his own life unsuccessfully. Now, where is the joy in all of this? Where is the Christmas cheer? This is probably the worst Christmas message you have ever heard in your entire life. There is nothing happy about all of this. But here's why I wanted to put this in context for you. Because on some level, there's a little bit of Herod in all of us. I don't mean that any of you are serial killers or wicked in your own right, but rather, we like King Herod, we like to control all of our circumstances. We like to be kings of our own castles. And we like to think that our futures are within our control. I can say it like this. King Herod was ruling, but God was in charge. And we like to think that we're in charge of our lives. But the fact of the matter is God's really the one in charge. Think about how much of human history we've uh, tried to, to develop and control our futures. Think about how we as human beings, we are the ones who invented clocks. We're the ones who created calendars. We're the ones who set alarms and schedules. And we've built massive computers in order to predict the weather. And we've studied the human body and things like calories and what you should eat and vegetables and how they act and, and meat and grass-fed beef and not all of these things. And we've uh, invented constitutions and treaties in order to control governments. And Herod essentially did the same thing in his day. 
He used taxes and currency. He built aqueducts and massive buildings, buildings you can still go visit today, by the way. Don't know that your house is going to be standing 2,000 years from now. And some of the buildings that Herod uh, constructed for his own glorification, uh, they still are standing today. And he did all of this in order to help uh, ensure the Pax Romana, Roman peace. 200 years, the only 200 years of human history that we have where an empire was not trying to overtake somebody else. And, and Herod did his part to make sure that there was still peace on earth during his reign. However, just because there's an absence of war doesn't guarantee the presence of peace people were very disturbed, the text tells us. I like what the philosopher Epictetus wrote. He says, while the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. Exactly. Only God can do that. That's why control is so misleading. Because if you think about it in your own life, Uh, Where do most of your problems arise? Generally, they come from passion and grief and envy. And because there's this lack of joy in your life, there's jealousy. And when joy is low, entitlement is high. I deserve better. I should have more. And so a lot of people, in response to this, we try and manufacture our own joy and our own peace. And generally... You, like Herod, miss the one who can actually provide it. Peace on earth, great joy for all people is what God came to this planet for. Write this down. Don't let your human insecurity cause you to miss a divine opportunity. This is really the message that we get from King Herod, that your human insecurity can cause you to miss a divine opportunity. Obviously, Herod was insecure. It's what caused jealousy. History tells us he was super short. Maybe that's why he was insecure. The old-fashioned short man syndrome. Uh, He wasn't actually Jewish. Uh, Maybe that's why he was insecure. That's why he had to call himself king of the Jews and demand that everybody call him that. I don't know what it is, but I know on some level we all have some kind of insecurity. We're all insecure about something. Could be your weight. Could be your financial situation. We do a lot to compensate for those things. Generally, it ends up perpetuating the problem. Maybe you don't feel good about yourself, so you'll stay in an abusive relationship. Maybe you try and self-medicate with harmful substances. I don't know what it is for you, but I know it's robbing you of your joy. That's what jealousy does. That's what insecurity does. Forget Herod for a second. Think about everybody else in this story. This enclave of wise men show up in Jerusalem. We don't know how many there were. We like to think of it as three. We three kings of Orient are. We don't actually get that from the text. It just says some wise men. They brought three gifts, we know. But it could have been hundreds. We have no idea how many men there were. We know there was enough that when they start asking around about a king of the Jews, everyone in Jerusalem is disturbed. We read that. And we know they get an answer to their question almost right away from the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious expert. And God all along for hundreds of years was giving his people clues as to what to look for in this Savior. So Herod asked the priests and the experts of the law, well, where is this king supposed to be born? Right away. Oh, in Bethlehem. 
Yeah, we, we knew that prophet Isaiah told us that a few hundred years ago. It's six miles away. Uh, we can go check it out. And the question you should be asking yourself is, well, why were the wise men the only ones who went in security? Because when you're an expert in religious law, when you know everything there is to know about God, you know God's not going to send a king as a baby. See, the Pharisees and Sadducees were too insecure to see the Savior in their own book. They knew everything. What kind of God would send a baby to save the world? Oh, make no mistake. He's not coming back as a baby. Eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus and his golden fleas and diapers. He grew up. And he's coming back to the universe as the reigning defending king with a sword in his hand and a tattoo on his leg. You should read Revelation. It says it in there. It's crazy stuff going on when Jesus comes back. And uh, what we really should be thinking and seeing is that in God's economy, it's always those who have the nothing to lose. They're the ones who welcome the Savior. It's the people who you'd never thought would do it. We saw it last week with the shepherds, those unclean sinners. We see it here with the wise men, those equally bad, evil sinners. Wait, what's, what's wrong with the wise men, Pastor? Well, it's not something that often gets pointed out at Christmas, but we know from Deuteronomy 18.9 that when you come into the land the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There should be found among you no one who, among other things, practices divination and tells fortunes or interprets omens, a.k.a. astrology. Divination... Uh, interpreting omens, uh, looking at the stars, that was strictly forbidden by God. And so what the wise men are doing when they're searching the stars for the Savior, they're sinning. And yet, God, in His wisdom, meets them exactly where they are. And He rechannels these efforts back to Him as He's done throughout the history of the world. God always meets the sinner where they are. Rahab, David, and Moses. He always meets a sinner where they are, as he will with you. And he reveals to them the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel. This is what makes me so nervous about Christmas this year. And what worries me about Christmas every year is that you'll be worried about the wrong thing. Who's going to be there? What are we going to buy? What present will be underneath the tree? We've got to get the stockings hung the right way. The lights need to be perfectly spaced on the tree and on the house. And we've got to post the picture of Santa online for everybody to see. And we've got to get the Christmas card out early. And we'll start controlling and trying to control every single piece. And in our control, we'll begin to worry. And in our worry, we'll miss the beauty of the gospel that God loves you that he sent his son to this planet to die for you. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were given hundreds and hundreds of clues. And what worries me is Jesus can be as close as six miles away and there'll be people who sit on their hands and never go and understand because I'm the king of my castle. I'm not a sinner. I know the law. I've kept the law. I'm a good person. And is that not what the, the Pharisees did? Is this not just a different form of jealousy that's robbing you of your joy? 
Don't let your insecurity cause you to miss a divine opportunity where you can surrender your heart to the king of the universe. And don't let your insecurity cause you to miss a divine opportunity if you have surrendered your heart to the king of the universe. Don't don't let that rob you of the joy that you've had. Your joy should overflow. And in that overflow, you should be compelled to invite someone to come along with you this Christmas to hear the message that Jesus is the Savior of the world. I can promise you, if you'll take one of these cards and invite someone to our Christmas Eve service, I'll promise you nothing weird is going to happen. And I promise you above and beyond any shadow of a doubt that they'll get to hear the good news that Jesus came to this earth to die for them. You don't have anything to be nervous about. And the statistics would say that people are more likely to say yes at Christmas than any other time of the year. How could you not want that for somebody to let them hear the good news? Strongly encourage you to invite someone this year. Don't let an insecurity rob you of the joy of seeing that person show up and potentially have their life changed forever. Every head bowed, every eye closed. God, thank you for this holy moment where you are here in our presence. God, again, we're asking you to do what only you can do and speak to hearts and speak to minds. And as we pray and reflect over this message, I just strongly encourage you to think about your own life. Think about where insecurity is maybe robbing you of this opportunity to have joy. Think about, have you really surrendered your heart to God or are you trying to live as the king of your castle? I want to give you a chance to to make that right in your life. But if you have accepted Christ, I want to challenge you to think about your own life too and say, is this season filled with joy for me? Because it should be. And if it is, is that joy overflowing into somebody else's life? And God, I'm begging you to bring the name of somebody to mind for each person in here who accepted you of someone that they should invite to hear the good news of the gospel of your son Jesus this year. And again, if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, if you look at your life and you say, it's not working, I've been trying to control my life, stop. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, you'll be saved. I want to give you a chance to do that. And you can just say, God, I believe in your son Jesus, that he came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, but rose from the dead. Forgive my sin because of the price he paid and I don't have to. God, thank you for the free gift of salvation through your son, Jesus. And it's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen.